0: In 1889, Nintendo was founded as a company that handmade playing cards to play various card games in Japan. Now, Nintendo grew and grew and grew, and when playing cards simply weren't a thing anymore, it managed to find a new niche. And then another, until before you know it, they were producing their first video game console, the Color TV Game Series. Today, we're going to learn about the history of Nintendo and look exactly at how it transformed from playing cards to video games during its history. As part of that history lesson, we'll look at their very first home console, the Color TV Game 6, and we'll talk at length about the first generation of video game consoles in itself. So stick around and join us at the Pong table as we take another trip down memory card lane. good afternoon and good evening i hope these words find you well hello and welcome to the 144th episode of our video game history podcast a trip down memory card lane each week we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history it can be about a game a console a person a technology a company just something relevant to the current week in gaming history while well, doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about the Color TV Game series, Nintendo's first consoles, along with the history of Nintendo itself, and we'll take a look at the rest of the first generation of consoles as part of the conversation. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always tinkering with things, He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what you making this week?
1: Well, Dave, working on a radio control for, you know, like RC cars or planes or stuff.
0: Literally, breadboarding it.
1: Yeah, you got that right.
0: Did you get it to work like your initial? I, I remember us talking last time that your initial plan didn't work. Did you did you figure it out?
1: Now nah, I'm starting to think that one of my modules is fried, so I'm going to get another one coming to see if that's the case, because it's just doing some weird, funky stuff that I can't quite trace down.
0: It'll happen sometimes. It'll definitely happen. That it will. When you're not tinkering with things, what video games have you been playing over the past week?
1: Well, Dave, this week saw some RuneScape, some Rocket League, and some Oxygen Not Included. You played Oxygen Not Included? I sure did, Dave. Nice. Very nice. I haven't played that in a hot minute. That's a really
0: fun game.
1: It sure is. I just randomly held the itch and uh, put quite the uh, quite the hours into it on the time I had off over the weekend. So Awesome. Absolutely. What about yourself? What have you been up to?
0: Rocket League, and I played another bit of Resident Evil Village. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm about done with it. I, I might be in the last hour or two of it at this point so yeah sounds like a good time good time rob what do you know about the first generation of video game consoles
1: they're very very old
0: <laughs> do you know any of the consoles that exist in the
1: first generation the atari <laughs> what which atari the the little joystick and the button mm-hmm. no well, that wasn't first gen uh, uh-uh. I'm, I'm sure. Are you thinking about the, the joystick with the red button? Uh, I thought it was orange, but maybe it was red. Orange, the one
0: the one that we talk about all the time, because the games in that period sold a gajillion copies. I mean, yeah, this is that's a second generation Atari.
1: Well, then I have no freaking clue about the <laughs> first. man. I thought that was it with like, wait, it was Pong before that. It was. OK, so Pong, there you go. There you go. I'll give there, you that. That's one. what I know. Pong.
0: I'll give you that. I will totally give you that. We 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 actually have talked about one other system in the first generation. And I'm surpri- I mean I'm surprised and also not surprised that you missed it. I, you don't you don't study this stuff like I do, but what have we we talked about what before? Like the very first console, haven't we? I mean, I'm the Magnavox Odyssey. Uh it, it kind of rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first console, at first commercial console ever, first generation. We've covered it before.
1: Uh, yeah, it's just it, you know, it's it's not surprising that it is that it's not quite as well known because you know it was yeah, wasn't quite as popular.
0: I will give you though that the Atari, I mean, the Atari is not considered a first generation. The Atari you're thinking of is actually a second generation. I think a lot of people would have made that same assumption. Because there was an Atari before there was an Atari, so to speak. And we're going to learn about that today. But before we get there, we're going all the way back to September 23rd, 1889.
1: 1889, Rob? Yeah, Dave. We all know what Nintendo did before they started making video games. And what's that? They made cards. They did make cards. So on September 23rd,
0: 1889... Nintendo was founded by Fusajiro Yamauchi as Yamauchi Nintendo. Now, it was based out of Kyoto, Japan. It was a little card shop called Nintendo Kapai, which is basically Nintendo cards. And they marketed what are known as Hanafuda or flower cards. Now, Hanafuda are one style of Japanese playing cards. They typically depict plants, animal, birds, or various man-made objects. The original ones had, like, depictions of for each month for instance there's one single card in the deck that typically depicts a human uh traditionally and the backs of the cards unlike western cards that usually have that like red white ish pattern on the back um hanafuda cards are plain on the back they're just plain plain black on the back they're also smaller than western playing cards but they're thicker and stiffer So they're a little different than what we know as playing cards here stateside. And I guess what I would assume most people know is playing cards, at least Western audiences, which, uh, you know, that's a lot of our background. But yeah, over 100 years ago, Nintendo was founded as a Nintendo card company, and they made these Hanafuda cards. So they handmade them initially, and they're super popular So much so that Yamauchi had to start hiring apprentices to help keep up with demand. Initially, Hanafuda cards were used simply for entertainment card games, like matching games, and there's a few other traditional Japanese card games like that that are specifically played with Hanafuda cards. But gamblers eventually caught on to the Hanafuda cards, and they wanted to use them in their games. In fact the Yakuza are known to have started to use them in some high stake games. So professional gamblers would want to begin each game with a fresh deck of handmade cards. So that meant a lot of cards were being sold to these people. And yes, Nintendo had trouble keeping up with demand. So they started hiring apprentices to help hand make these cards. Wow. In 1907, Fusuyo expanded the business to make Nintendo, the first company in Japan to manufacture and sell Western-style playing cards. So here we are now, 1889, 11, 18 years later, almost 20 years later, they're now in the business of making Hanafuda and what we know as playing cards, like poker-style cards, you know? But as the company grew, he found himself needing better ways to get them into people's hands. So at this point... He partners with Japan Tobacco and Salt Public Corporation and they struck an agreement that allowed Nintendo to sell their cards in Japan Tobacco and Salt's cigarette shops. So the business is booming, things are well, it's growing, they're making money, selling a ton of stuff. And then in 1929, Fusajiro decides he wants to leave the company. He was content with the success content with the growth of the company and knowing that it would continue to grow and he was ready to retire. But traditionally back then and now to, you know, in some cases, but mostly back then your business would go to, or was inherited by your eldest son or by, I don't even know if it's eldest. Don't put those words in my mouth. But the truth is, is that Fusahiro Yamauchi didn't have a son to take over the family business. So instead, per Japanese tradition, he adopted his son-in-law, sakiro Kaneda, who then legally took his wife's last name of Yamauchi, as was done in this situation. So now we have sakiro uh, Yamauchi, and he is running the business. In 1933, he establishes a joint venture with another company, they move into a larger building and they re- num- renamed a company, Yamauchi Nintendo and Company. And they continue to grow. People are buying more cards, people are are playing more games. The company is continuing to grow. You know, I can we can assume that here in the 30s, we're going into World War One, we're gonna go into 40s, World War
1: II, cards were probably being distributed to soldiers. They were just oh that when you say it like that I wasn't even thinking that but you're right that absolutely is the right time and you know I'm sure that the government did a huge uh, Mm -hmm. huge investment into those yeah because soldiers need something to do
0: yep so 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 they're growing Nintendo's just growing and growing growing (laughs) in 1947 Sekiro Sekiro I don't know he establishes a distribution company which is called Merufuku Company Limited to distribute the Hanafuda and Nintendo was selling a lot of Western style pinnacle and poker decks um, across all of Japan. And I'm like I said, I'm assuming other words in 1949, he has a stroke and his grandson who's away at university is asked to come to his bedside. And his grandson was Hiroshi Yamauchi and Hiroshi Yamauchi was asked to take over his company. Now, why his grandson when we just got done having a conversation about how your son is the one who takes over the company? Well, Hiroshi's father, who isn't even worth naming, abandoned his son with his grandparents when he was five years old and he left. So grandparents raised Hiroshi and Uh, that that was that. So may as well have been their son at that point. So, I mean, at this point, grandson is the next in line of succession. So it's now 1949, and Hiroshi Yamauchi becomes the third president of Nintendo. Now, I'm going to throw it out there at this point because we're not really going to bring it up again, but we've talked about Hiroshi Yamauchi a lot on this podcast. He was the president of Nintendo from 1949 until 2002. So he's a part of a lot of Nintendo stories that we've covered in the past as well. So he's a name. You should know him. The third president, Nintendo, pretty much all the growth that we know from Nintendo, ushering them from here playing cards into what we know them now. Now is one of the bigger, biggest. Let's be fair. They are one of the biggest video game manufacturers in the world. Uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi is has I mean, he's the president for all of that. In 1951, he renames the Marufuku Company Limited to Nintendo Karuda, which basically translates to Nintendo Playing Cards Company. In 1956, he visits the U.S. to talk business with the US PCC, or the United States Playing Card Company. They are the biggest playing card manufacturer in the United States. The world, actually. And so Yamauchi visits them and he's surprised to find that what he knows which is the truth the biggest playing card company in the world is relegated to a small office in Cincinnati
1: I really can't blame the guy at Cincinnati so <laughs> I mean what's that supposed to mean Dave it's Cincinnati. Cincinnati
0: it's Ohio it's okay, Cincinnati yeah, you got a point there
1: yeah, I mean, it's Cincinnati, a small office in Cincinnati. Who wants
0: to be relegated to a small office in Cincinnati? I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I'm going to get so much hate from that from my best friend. So, <laughs> so, this trip plants a seed in Hiroshi Yamauchi's mind. He understands at that point that there is only so much growth for the company in playing card. In 1958, he strikes a deal with Disney to allow the use of Disney characters on Nintendo playing cards. So Nintendo starts selling decks with Disney characters on them, alongside books that explained the rules of various card games. And this was an extremely successful period for Nintendo. In a single year, they sold over 600,000 packs of playing cards. It made Nintendo so successful that they were finally able to become a publicly listed company on the, on the stock exchange in 1962. Wow. And it was the following year in 1963 that the Nintendo playing card company limited was renamed to simply Nintendo and Yamauchi began to look at other businesses in order to grow his company beyond playing cards. And this is a good thing too, because by around 1964, it's recognized that playing cards had pretty much completely saturated Japanese households and people just stopped buying them. In the course of a year, this was recognized by investors. The Nintendo stock went from 900 yen down to 60 yen. That's a hell of a fall. I know, but it was also a lucky year the following year because in 1965, Nintendo hired another employee that would unexpectedly help usher Nintendo into another age. Now, we've talked about Gunpei Yokoi before in various episodes. He's the creator of the Game Boy. He's the creator of the Virtual Boy. He was involved in Metroid. He ran Nintendo R&D 1. I can't think if it's 1 or 2. I think it's 1. But pretty much everything that was Nintendo-related in the early time of Nintendo, from arcades into the, um, into the, into the console era he was involved in. And then when they broke the division into the Game Boy, which might be r d 3, now I'm thinking about it, uh, Yokoi was in charge of that. So he, we've talked about him a lot. He's one of the more prolific designers at Nintendo. Rob, you may remember him because he's the one who had an untimely end. Remember he was on the highway and got hit when he was trying to help another motorist?
1: Uh, yeah, yep. That, that, reminds yeah, that, yeah yeah yeah. that story sticks out in people's heads it sure does yeah
0: well i mean he was he was a very prolific designer and his time was cut unfortunately short by a very tragic accident but back here in 1965 he was simply hired as a maintenance engineer for their assembly line and in his spare time he liked to tinker and make things for fun so in 1966 uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi is visiting one of the uh, card-playing factories, card playing card factories, rather, and he stumbles across, basically, uh, a toy that Gunpo- Gunpei Yokoi had made for fun. It was an extending arm shape device. Yokoi, I'm sorry, Yamauchi was really impressed with it, and he saw its potential... And so he took it and asked to have it developed into a proper product for the Christmas rush. Now this was called the Ultra Hand, and it is basically a plastic reach extender that would allow you to grip things from a distance. You ever watch those Looney Tunes commercials, and they have that like scissors thing that like extends out to reach out really far? Yeah, like that's the one that's, they put on a b-
1: boxing glove.
0: That's exactly it. That is quite literally what the ultra hand is. That, that is it. It is literally that.
1: So that I was thinking something completely different.
0: Nope. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's except on theirs. They had like just little stick ends that could grab like hand ends that could grab things, but but you, you nailed it to a T that is a perfect example. I didn't think of the little scissor thing that they put on, on, on boxing gloves. That's exactly what the ultra hand was little fun fact. Uh, I know neither of us have had played into it yet, but there is actually a new ability in the new Zelda uh, tears of the kingdom called ultra hand, which was inspired by this toy here. Um, it's found on a Mario Kart course. It's in a Majora's mask.
1: I think as a Easter egg, it's been, it's been places just so you know. So I don't remember it from Majora's mask. I'm going to have to remind myself. There's a couple, it.
0: there's a couple of these early toys um, there's a couple of these early toys like there's another one called the um, there is another one called the uh, 10 billion barrel that is also a Easter egg in Majora's mask. So, yeah, anyway, um, Yamauchi saw the potential in Yokoi after he you know made this toy, which was a good seller. So he pulled him off the assembly line and he placed him in product development. Now, Yokoi's background was actually in electrical engineering. That's what brought him to maintenance, uh, to be a maintenance engineer on an assembly line. So it became really apparent, it was quickly apparent that electronic toys would be his thing, which was great for Yamauchi because electronic toys had a much higher novelty value than traditional toys. And so therefore, they could be sold for a much higher profit than traditional toys. So he puts Yokoi on product development, sets him loose, and Yokoi helps develop, along with other people, um, but he's definitely the notable one, several other toys that help Nintendo transition from playing cards into a toy company, basically is what they are at this point. Um, So throwing out some of the early ones... There are toys... I, I I just have a list. Um, I do have a couple, which I'll expand on. But the list... Like, some of these, I'm kind of curious. Like, there's one called Punch Race that was produced in 1965. There's one called Time Bomb that was produced in 65. There's one called New Coaster Game and Rabbit Coaster Game, which are 66. Marble in 66. <laughs> Twister Game in 66. Uh, there's just a bunch of... There's just a bunch of these early which call Um Now, a couple that Yokoi himself is responsible for, of course, we first talked about the Ultra Hand. There is a uh, baseball throwing toy. Literally, it's a pitching machine. It's called the Ultra Machine. Um, the Ultra Machine is... I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's literally a pitching machine. Um, he also made something called, like I said, the 10 Billion Barrel, which is a mathematical and mechanical puzzle. It's basically a barrel with a that's divided into sections and has a bunch of balls in it, and you rotate the sections and move the balls up and down. The whole point is to get the same color balls to line up in the same column. There's like five different columns and you want to get them all the same color. Does that make sense? Yeah it does. Yeah, okay. So um yes. Yes, yes, yes. And actually, funny enough that one was in, um, that one's in Metroid Prime, the 10, uh, 10 billion barrel. Um, yes, it's actually one of the puzzles that you have to solve, uh, as a morph ball by rotating the levels in the phase mines. So these early toys, they have kept their ideas alive in their video games, which is really sweet when you start to know these things and, um, and learn about it. That one, that time billion dollar barrel is also an Easter egg in Majora's mask, but I don't, I don't quite know. Hold on. Let me see what the article says. Uh, it's not an article. It's a video and we don't have time for it right now. That's okay. Anyway. So yeah. So Yokoi is making all these things. Um, Probably his best known toy was a novelty toy called the love tester. And what the love tester was, is a girl and a boy would hold each other's hands and with their free hands, they would hold two handles inside the machine. And that machine then tested how much love was flowing between them it was actually measuring the electrical current passing between them it had nothing to do with love. Nice. Nice. But the love tester was an incredibly popular machine. It sold a ridiculous amount of um, Nintendo, a, a ridiculous amount of uh, of of which call it. um, what's the word I'm looking for? Amount. It sold a ridiculous amount. It was a very popular product for him. So, anyway, there you go. The love tester. After the success of Love Tester, the thought was what's next. So Gunpei Yokoi hires Masayuki Umura from Sharp, and together they begin developing Nintendo beam gun games f- using the solar cells from Sharp. This would have been just about 1970 because 1970 is when I think they put out the first one. So Yokoi and Umura, they start experimenting with small solar cells that can be to they, to, to use them as sensors that could detect light coming from, well, a light gun in this case. And so they design a cheap light gun that could be sold on the consumer market. And they produced Nintendo Beam Gun games, which was a light gun and some targets, which were just targets with solar cells mounted on them. They put them out in the market and they sold over a million copies of this Nintendo Beam Gun game in the about 1970. Which is crazy. For, I mean, a million, a million, a million units of a toy in 1970
1: is not too shabby,
0: you know, for a company that's not really international yet,
1: too. I mean, they're not that is super impressive. I just wonder, based on that, does that uh, have any relation to how the uh, the one from Duck Hunt looked?
0: One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay.
1: the the early ones were like plain gray, like
0: 1970s beige gray, because that was the color. Mm-hmm. But the inspiration of it, like the shape and everything, they kind of they kind of it, it didn't change much. So I am yeah, not going to yeah. say they're exact, but you can definitely see the inspiration when you look at them. So
1: that's pretty just... awesome.
0: Now, the beam gun success led to what's called Nintendo's laser clay shooting system. Now, we covered this in a previous episode. I believe it was the Donkey Kong episode to sum it up. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because there is more to it than this. Nintendo bought a bunch of abandoned bowling alleys and they tried to install these laser clay shooting arcade systems in them. But the whole venture failed because it was too expensive to maintain. Uh, The reason why we talked about it in Donkey Kong, because this is one in a string of things that brought Nintendo to the brink of bankruptcy. And it was Donkey Kong that saved them. And brought them away from that and essentially gave them the money to produce the Nintendo, which really cemented them as a global, uh, a global entertainment company, or let's not say entertainment video game company. Okay, so that's that whole story. But there's a lot more to it with distribution across the globe and uh, Nintendo of America doing something different than than Nintendo of Japan. It's an interesting story. Go check out the Donkey Kong episode. So. I also think it's the first time we learned we we, we learned about uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, which is, you know, one of the most famous game designers. So go check go check it out.
1: Yeah, go check it out.
0: Go check it out on our website, www.memorycardlane.com. There's the plug. I couldn't possibly do that without a plug. Sure you could. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for stating the obvious. You are so right. <laughs> Someone's terrible. gotta be. Ooh. So, yes, they've made the beam gun, they made the laser clay shooting system, and in the midst of all this, in the mid seven early 70s rather, Nintendo becomes involved in video games for the first time. When they struck a deal with Magnavox to develop and produce the light guns for the very first commercial video game console, which we know, we've covered it before, is the Magnavox Odyssey. Now, their partnership with Magnavox didn't stop there. They didn't just make the beam guns for the system. And then the beam guns, as a side note, they were an add-on product that you could purchase for the Odyssey. They weren't included with the the console itself. So Nintendo made one of the few accessories that was ever produced for the Odyssey. They produced it. Didn't have their name on it. Uh, it, It's definitely a Magnavox add-on, but you know, it's Nintendo's beam gun technology. They're the ones who made the, them. Their partnership with Magnavox carried on. Uh, it's 1974, and Nintendo acquired the right to distribute the Magnavox in Japan. So, of course, Magnavox was selling them stateside, and then Nintendo was the, the Japanese distributor of the Magnavox Odyssey. And in these years, in these early 70s, Nintendo made a series of really uninspired arcade cabinets like Othello and chess and like really plain and boring. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to pull my punches. Like they are notoriously bad arcade cabinets in the beginning. They were clones realistically, because we talked about cloning, like how clones really proliferated in the early arcade industry they were very much just clones. They made it a breakout clone, for instance. They made clones of games, but they just there was nothing special about them. So um, if you look them up, you'll see that mentioned over and over. Really uninspired arcade games in the beginning. That kind of changed in 1974. Um, in 1974, they made a arcade cabinet. We've talked about it before. It's called EVR Race. Uh, it essentially was a horse racing game that you could bet on. It used, uh, EVR was a, a, like a laser disc technology. That's when we talked about it. Um, so it's kind of cool in order to make the EVR race arcade cabinet, they partner with Mitsubishi simply because they weren't equipped to build anything as sophisticated as the EVR, EVR race cabinet really needed to be. So they turned to a company that was really well-versed in sophisticated electronics, Mitsubishi. So they make the cabinet together. It's 1974. Nintendo's distributing the Odyssey. And then 1975 rolls around. And Atari releases their first console for all purposes, which was called Atari Pong. It was a standalone Pong system, and it just kind of exploded onto the market. Uh, People wanted it. People were selling it. So here we are. So, what else was Nintendo really to do? Uh, but break into the home console market. It made sense to give the people what they want, didn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, I would think so.
0: Absolutely made sense. I,
1: I would uh, say it was a pretty, pretty smart decision by them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh,. Wild Gunman, Fascination, and Shooting Trainer. Those were the arcade cabinets before EVR Race. So then, after you have Test Driver, New Shooting Trainer, and Computer Othello, and Space Fever. Just a bunch of things you've probably never heard of.
1: <laughs> Not a one. And,
0: um, I think the earliest, we've talked a little bit about Sheriff before, and we've talked about Radar Scope because Radar Scope is part of the Donkey Kong story. It's the arcade that failed. That they were forced to... That's why they made Donkey Kong. Seriously, guys, cool story. Oh, Space Firebird. We've looked at that one because I think that was one of the first games that uh, Miyamoto ever worked on, if I'm not mistaken. Don't hold me to that, please. Let me click on it and find out. Uh, Yep. Takita and Miyamoto. You can hold me to that. Suckers! So it's 1975, and Atari is... Got the Pong system, Magnavox has the Odyssey, people are starting to make home consoles. It's becoming increasingly clear that home consoles are going to be a thing moving forward. So Nintendo turns to Mitsubishi, they partner with Magnavox to get a license. Uh, Magnavox at this point was, you know, had their own. Pong clone as part of the Magnavox Odyssey. Uh, you see, that was this whole thing because the Odyssey came first and had Pong on it. So there's all these legal battles going on about who actually owns the rights to Pong. It's its own story. Uh yeah. So they turned the Mitsubishi to do the electronics, they turned the Magnavox to license Pong. And they decided they want to make a console to compete with the Atari Pong console. Now, Hiroshi Yamauchi had some demands. He wanted the consoles to be produced quickly because he thought that the more time went by, they were going to be left behind. And and he demanded, I guess demand's a hard way to put it, I don't know how demanding he was. But he wanted it to be made with cheaper parts to, produce, to reduce production costs. His idea was that he wanted to give Nintendo a competitive edge by making the systems cheap to purchase. So because of these demands, the production of this console happened incredibly quickly. Nintendo designs the console. They give it to Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi makes some minor changes and corrections to design, but largely leave it alone, and they throw it into production. So, on June 1st, 1977... Nintendo releases the Color TV game 6. Now, I want a th- six. 6. I'll cover that in just a sec in a a, a, a second. I want to first point out that Yamauchi got his wish because when they came out, the launch price of the Atari Home Pong system was uh about ninety-eight dollars at the time uh it's the equivalent of about five hundred and thirty eight dollars in twenty twenty two i forgot to move it one more year my bad um
1: which you know is about right for a new the, console. The <laughs> od- yeah i know right
0: the odyssey was a hundred dollars so you know there you go and the color tv game series was thirty six dollars so, wow,
1: which would be the equivalent to uh, what
0: in twenty twenty two dollars
1: like one hundred and seventy four dollars. Wow, wow, so, so like the cost of a not even a handheld; those are yeah. still more nowadays. I mean,
0: it puts it puts it where the wow. Wii was. To be fair, Wii was a two hundred dollars system. So
1: really, I thought it was well at least two fifty, but I guess that's pretty um, close.
0: Was it? I thought it released at two hundred. That was the whole goal; is they wanted to make it cheap, cheap, cheap. That was.
1: Maybe I'm wrong. I just know that was around the price of the 3DSs.
0: Um, Yeah, so he got his wish. It was priced significantly lower than the other systems, which gave Nintendo the edge that Yamauchi was looking for. So the color TV game six contained six variations of Pong. You could add additional paddles You could decrease the size of the paddles. You could add deflective shields in the center of the screen. That's where the six comes from.
1: Gotcha. I thought it was the sixth variation, like how they do. Well, I guess that the numbers don't mean anything. Not anymore.
0: Unfortunately.
1: Now, when you go from 360 to one.
0: Right. You only need one. This will be the only thing you need in your entertainment console. That's where that came from. So.
1: No, oh, it really is. is. They it? wanted
0: to like it, it was the one, the one thing that you needed because it did live TV and, and you could do the DVR and you could play Blu-rays on it, play video games. It was it was the only thing you needed in your entertainment system. That's how they spun that. So
1: huh? I actually didn't know that. That's pretty neat. Random yep. fact for something else. So the color TV game six
0: could be powered by batteries or they sold a power adapter for it. It was redesigned pretty quickly, actually. Uh, They released an improved version of it afterwards. I think the original was orange, I think. Afterwards, they got a cream white outer casing one, and they took away the power adapter, uh, because, I don't know, maybe they weren't selling them. There was a second variation produced as part of a promotion, with a food company called House Foods to promote promote its House Shanmen instant noodles. It's identical to the original TV Game 6 but has the House Shanmen logo on the casing. That version was produced in very limited qual- quantities, so it's extremely rare. So if you ever see a TV Game 6 with the with the ramen noodle company logo on it, buy it if it's reasonable. Okay. Sharp Electronics produced dark orange colored version of the TV Game 6 to bundle exclusively with their television sets. Fun fact. One week later, on June 8th, Nintendo releases the color TV Game 15.
1: Ooh, it, wow. It, what the hell? 15 yeah, 15 it really it
0: releases for a cost of about 50% more. Than the TV Game 6. Um, it's pretty much just an enhanced version. Of the TV Game 6. Of course the 15 games. Are just more modifications. Of Pong. Um, and funny enough. The TV Game 6 and the TV Game 15. Are identical consoles. Only 6 are accessible on the TV Game 6. Without some. Bo- uh, breadboard modification. But they're the same console. I uh, like they're the, I don't know any way to put it. They're the same console.
1: Like. So, literally, it was just how they wired yeah, things Yeah, essentially. Up.
0: Probably chips that were soldered a specific way. Now, the TV game 15 had detachable controllers. It's different in that respect. Um, so, the casing was different. It's the same in innards. That's what I wanted to stress there. But uh, uh had detachable controllers. They could be stored in a small compartment on the system. There was a um, probably the most common version of the tv game series is another model of the tv game 15 that has a reddish orange casing uh, that had the longest production run uh, so it's the most common one you'll find out there but there's also a sharp sharp also made a um a tv game 15 it's white and it's called the tv game xg 115
1: they did a lot of partnering with sharp yeah they sure did was Sharp like a big thing over there, or is it just kind of a coincidence?
0: You know, I don't know the answer. I didn't think to look it up. I mean, I would I would assume so, given, I mean, that I, this was a big deal. We'll cover that in a second. There are more games, consoles in the Color TV game series. There was a third unit that was published a few years later in on June 8th, 1978. Actually, I think that'd be a year later. Um, called the Color TV Game Racing One Twelve, it is a much larger unit than the previous two because it is a racing game that comes with a steering wheel that could be put on or taken off, um, taken off the console.
1: So, so it literally attached to the console. Yes.
0: Yeah. All these consoles are built-in wow. things. So there are some variations of it. I, I'm sorry. The variations because it was 112. You could have smaller screen width, opponents that move faster, all the different vary the different game combinations that you could modify the arc the racing game, a total 112, hence the racing 112. So. Also came in a really large shipping box as a side note. That's a, a distinction. <laughs> and it had two paddle controllers for multiplayer support. So you could race with someone. But only on the paddle controller. Yes. Hmm. On April 23rd, 1979, they released the color TV game block Kuzushi. This was the system was produced by Nintendo, not Mitsubishi. Because of this, the Nintendo name slash logo is more prominently displayed on these versions. That one includes six variations of Breakout, which is uh, an arcade game that we covered in an episode recently. Very recently, actually. Nintendo had released a clone of Breakout called Block Fever for Japanese arcanes in 1978, so it made it popular. Nintendo made their color TV game Block Kazushi. A rival company named Epic released something called the TV Block Console in Japan, and it was successful. It gave, you know, this, this is when Nintendo started to really see some co- some competition. Fun note, the color TV game Block Kazushi the system's casing was designed by none other than Shigeru Miyamoto, uh, creator of Mario. That is actually one of the very first projects he worked on after joining Nintendo in 1977. Wow. The very final console in this series is called the Computer TV Game. It was released in 1980. couple games on it. Wasn't really notable, though. It's actually considered the very last game ever released in the first generation of consoles, And because because dedicated consoles were already decreasing in popularity, and we'll talk about that in a moment, they didn't make a lot of the computer TV game. It's probably the most rare out of that whole bunch. Uh, Actually, I don't know that the house noodle one may be more rare, but it's (laughs) an an extremely rare console because they didn't make a lot of them. It has white colored casing and packaging. Once again, it was designed by Miyamoto, so it's special for that special in that respect. It actually contains a version of Computer Othello that was an arcade cabinet that Nintendo made turned into a cabinet. And it's pretty much the arcade system board from the Computer Othello kind of remade into a home console. And it is an arcade perfect rendition of the game, which was very, very uncommon. Very, very uncommon. It's a rarity for Uh, arcades and consoles in the 1980s it's a rarity period we talked about that recently when we did the neo geo because if you haven't listened to that episode yet the neo geo was a home console and an arcade cabinet that used the same board they were literally identical to one another
1: yeah couldn't you like take a a thing from the arcade and take it to the home one and continue playing from a a spot like a, a memory card so to speak
0: yeah they sold a memory card for the neo geo series that would let you take your saved games from the arcade to the to home Now, the Color Game TV series was the most successful of all of the first generation of video game consoles. The the Color Game 6 and the Color Game 15 each sold 1 million units, and the next two models sold half a million units each. So, altogether, this series sold about 3 million units. So, let's talk about the rest of the first generation of consoles. The first generation of consoles lasted from the release of the Magnavox Odyssey, the very first commercial home console, which was 1972, up until, like I said, Nintendo's last system in this lineup, which was the computer TV game, which released in 1980. So to put the popularity of Nintendo's console into perspective, like I said, they sold... 3 million units between the 6 units in this series, right? Right. The Odyssey, the very first game console ever created, the Odyssey sold roughly about 350,000 units. And Atari's home Pong console only sold 150,000 units. Wow. So when we're talking big difference...
1: Big difference. <laughs> so that's that's a pretty huge difference.
0: You know, a moment ago, I talked about Epic be, making the TV block and kind of you know, like like giving Nintendo competition that made Nintendo innovate. But all of the Epic ones only sold 20,000. So it wasn't that much competitions. And then the closest to that is a, a, a series we haven't really talked about. So Coleco made a series called the Telstar. There were 14 models in the Telstar series. They were also cheap. They were $50 back then, uh, which was about $250 in 2022 because of their affordability. They sold a million units to Nintendo's 3 million units. And of course the Odyssey, they made different Odysseys too. We don't quite know how many, how many uh, units the Odyssey sold between its 11 consoles, but there's no doubt that nobody sold in else sold in the millions the way that the Telstar and most definitely didn't sell more than a million like Nintendo did. Most of the games that were developed during the first generation were all hardwired into the consoles. So they were mostly single game units like Pong or Racing or Breakout or something like that. That would have like switches and dials on them to change things about the game. Like your paddles, faster balls, faster opponents in a racing game. And that's how you got all the variations. But they hadn't yet invented cartridges. So there was no pulling game out, putting game in. And that's what made this first generation of consoles very unique. Graphical capabilities of the first generation of consoles were really just simple geometry They were dots and lines and blocks. There we we weren't sophisticated enough to go past that. And they only occupied a single screen. There was no multi screen games, no going from one level to another. Nothing like that. The whole game, its design, its characters, its everything was contained to one screen. Simple. Very, very simple. First generation consoles were not capable of displaying more than two colors in the beginning. Eventually they got a little bit more sophisticated and there were some of these consoles that actually didn't even have sound built into them. So no joke, there was no sound with some of the first generation consoles.
1: That would have been
0: so weird. And a lot of these consoles had one game. So companies released a lot of versions of these consoles as they learn how to create more variations or they wanted different games or stuff like that. So, and we've kind of talked this before with the Odyssey. So this may be a revisit for some of our longtime listeners. The first generation of consoles had 903 unique consoles in it altogether. Wow. Now there weren't nearly as many afterwards. So in fact, statistically from the second generation to now, there have only been 102 additional oh consoles my made. Oh, God. That is insane. And truthfully, Rob, to kind of go back to what you said, things really didn't ramp up until the second generation. The Atari 2600, which is the Atari you're thinking of, sold 30 million units. And that's the bestseller of the second generation. So the bestseller of the first generation sells 3 million. This bestseller of the second generation sells
1: 30 million units. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's understanding the popularity difference, but I mean, still, I mean, when you have 903, considering one of them sold 3 million, even if they only sold like one or two million, like that's a significant amount of monies and units sold
0: but like i forgot what the other statistic is like like i think the only console that still exists from the first generation is nintendo that's that's a true stat um because no one else in the first generation is still actively making video game consoles um and there are a ridiculous number of uh, like 903 there are companies that you'll have never heard of like Alphabetically, the very first console in that generation. There is a Canadian company called AGS Electronics that made a Pong console called the AGS TVG One
1: Hundred One. Eh. Come on, Dave! Everyone knows that one.
0: Everyone knows the TVG One Hundred One. There is an American company called APF Electronics. They made a ton: uh, TV Fun Four Hundred One, TV Fun Four Hundred One A, TV Fun Sportsorama Four Hundred Two, TV Fun Four Forty Four. I don't know what the difference between any of these are. Not at all. Let's see. Academy in the United Kingdom. Tronic in the United Kingdom made a Pong console called Telesports 4. I don't know what happened to 1 through 3. I genuinely have no idea. There's no 1 through 3 on the list here.
1: At all. Probably because it contained four games or four variations of the same game.
0: France, People's Republic of China. There was a company called Alcatel. Wait, I, oh, That's what it says. France and the People's Republic of China. They must be a company in both. They made a a console called the Visiomatic 101, which was a light gun pong and light gun console. I guess that's why there was two of them. So any other interesting ones? Asiflex. So Mm -hmm. Atari. Let's talk about their first generation. They made Hockey Pong. They made a racing game called Stunt Cycle. They made Pong, Ultra Pong doubles, Super Pong. So they made they the video pinball, which is a beautiful wood grade console. Might I might I add Pong doubles. So they made a bunch of first generation consoles. Ultra Pong was a two player 16 Pong game console. There you go. How many people? Uh, two only two players but sixteen games. It had sixteen. Oh, variations. So, oh,
1: okay. I thought you said sixteen player. I was like, whoa.
0: Bandai, as in Namco Bandai, made pong consoles starting in nineteen seventy seven. They made a series called the TV Jack one thousand. So they made pong consoles. Let me see. Do we have any of that? We're just in the bees. Good lord. I want to see if any. Ooh, here is one. Canadian Tire. Made, made one console called the Video Sports 84-6072. It was, a, it was clearly a Pong console.
1: Canadian Tire.
0: Canadian Tire. That's the brand. Canadian Tire. Mm. Neat. Let's see. Coleco made a bunch. We know that. Commodore made a Pong. A, actually, a light gun console, it looks like. So they got into it in the first generation. Concept Concord. Conic. Let's see. DMS Clayton Group Limited. No clue what that is. Daewoo. Isn't Daewoo an automobile manufacturer? Uh, The Daewoo Group is a South Korean automobile manufacturer. In 1977, they produced a TV Sports 77 Pong console.
1: Hmm. That's
0: That's something else. That's a fun one. There was an Australian company called Dick Smith, which is an Australian chain of retail stores. Uh, I just like the name. That's why I brought it up. Who doesn't like Dick Smith? Yeah, so, Dave, sure. the, so The Soviet Union had a brand called Electronica that made Soviet Pong consoles. We've talked about Electronica before in our Tetris episode. That's what popped that one up. There's all of Epics, Fuji... Made a console called the Sportstron TV game, Coca Cola Edition. The dials built into the system are Coca Cola cap shaped. Cool beans. Nice. That's,
1: That's cool.
0: Yeah. Magnavox is here. General Home Products is here. Glory Tone. That's a cool name. I thought it was going to be something else. Let's see. Grundig, Hanamax. Oh my God. Harvard. Harvard's a company. Harvard made, I don't know. Harvard's apparently a company. Harvey. Hobbytron. Hometronics. Interelectronic. Inner. I want to see if there's any other weird ones on this list. JCPenney. JCPenney had a JCPenney branded console. It was a Pong console called the Video Sports Electronic 4-in-1. So that's nice. JCPenney still around. We know that one. Lloyd's. Logitech. I don't think that's the same Logitech, but in 1978, a Japanese company called Logitech made a Pong console.
1: Maybe it was the inspiration.
0: Maybe it was the inspiration. Who knows? Match, mentor, monarch, monkey ward, Montgomery Ward made one called the Video World of Sports. It was a Coleco Telstar Deluxe clone that was sold, branded and sold by Montgomery Ward in Canada. There's Nintendos, there's Novatron, Palladium, Paulson, Panoramic, Panoramic, oh Argentinian Panoramic, Philco, I feel like uh, that's an ele- early electronics manufacturer out of Philadelphia. They made a few Pong consoles, that's kind of cool. Econ, Pristronic, Radio Shack, no surprise that Radio Shack got in on it. Radio Shack has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in the first in the first generation of consoles, that's pretty cool. Schneider Electric, Ooh.
1: really? Yep, that's frustrating to hear.
0: What, uh, you work with them in your business, don't you?
1: They are a competitor, yes,
0: yeah. French multinational company that specializes in digital automation and energy management, yeah, I'd say so. Well. In 1978, they made, actually they just rebranded some Philips machines that were Pong and light gun consoles as uh, the Telelude series. So there you go. Sears, of course, made a series of them. Sears is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Sennheiser. Sennheiser in 1977, made a Pong console. Sennheiser. Like, high-fidelity audio product Sennheiser. How
1: cool is that?
0: Oh, Sennheiser. Yeah, sorry. Sennheiser. My bad. I got excited. Siemens made a a Pong console. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) There's still a huge manufacturer of stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> they sure are. Oh my God. There are three first generation of consoles that were made by the Soviet union. They were actually made by the Soviet government. Cause I mean, they were communists and so they're branded Soviet union. Wow. That's pretty dope. TCR, TEC, Tandy, Tandy made a bunch, technograph, telematch. Let's see. Temco. We've stumbled across them. Hops and Tommy, Ultrasound, Unimex, Unisonic. Unisonic still makes consumer electronics, don't they? Nah.
1: Nah, it doesn't nah. sound familiar.
0: Yeah, I think they went defunct in the 90s. They made a bunch. Univox, I think that they're gone. Video Master, Videotron. There you go. So there was 903. Sorry, that's probably a little weird as I, I, I scrolled through 903 of those.
1: A little bit, Dave. A lot of time killing you're getting there. But that's it.
0: That's it. That's exactly it. Uh, That's the first generation of consoles. That's the color TV game. That's the history of Nintendo. I don't really think I need to tell you what happened in Nintendo after the color TV game. Uh, We've covered that history many times over. Many, many, many times over. Uh, Have we, Dave? We have. And if you'd like to check out those old episodes, Rob... If you'd like to check out those old episodes like Donkey Kong.
1: Yeah, where can we do that? On our
0: website, www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can they find on our website?
1: Also on our website, you can find a calendar of previous and future episodes. You can find little links to blurbs about Dave and I. Uh, You can find access links to our social medias and Discord channel. I can be found on social medias at Rob underscore the letter O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found
0: on various platforms as David is wrong.
1: Each week we tell
0: you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week we covered the history of Nintendo leading up to their very first console, uh, the Color TV game series. Uh, While telling you our stories, we hope to tell you, teach you something new about the topic, what it takes from the world as its inspiration, What it gives back to the world as its legacy. One of the best parts about doing this week in, week out is as we teach you things, we learn things. It's a constant cycle to teach to learn. So as part of our commitment to the teaching and learning cycle, we like to go back and take a moment and talk about what we learned each week. Rob, what did you learn today?
1: I learned that there is a console before the Atari like the, the joystick with a butt, single button that I thought was yeah. the first. Yeah, they made... It. Um, but, it, but beyond that, I think it's still pretty cool to know that um, here... Because I believe that you said the uh, Color TV 6 was Pong yeah. variations. That there are just that many variations on Pong <laughs> in a console. Yeah, I mean, there's um, f- there's 15 on one. 15, to yeah. be fair, yes, yeah, on, the, on the newer one. But just... I, I, I don't know, I'd always thought of Pong as just that one game, and to know that there's something out there that's literally just, hey, here's this, but varied, and it's not, like, a newer thing trying to be retro, it's, like, legitimate from the time, it's yeah. kind of cool. hey,
0: here's Pong, hey, here's Pong with bigger paddles, hey, here's Pong with a faster ball, I mean, that that was what they did, ways to just...
1: Yeah, but, I mean, when you think of it, that's, like, most games today, when you get, like, the random power-ups and things, they just... Did it each has its own separate yeah. thing
0: what's even more fascinating is that like the way they did it right like like these systems are chips built in and they basically just modified the way those chips presented everything that's what these variations are right like hit this pin to do this one and this pin to do this thing i mean that's the way that early systems all worked so to speak so
1: yeah absolutely so that's it for me what about yourself dave
0: I knew, I think everyone knows, like, it's one of those things we love to talk about if we're like, hey, we know about video game history, but it's kind of well known that Nintendo does, did playing cards in their early history, but I had never taken the time to actually learn what that meant and what that looked like from 1889 till now. This was the very first time I had ever perused Nintendo's actual history. I didn't know, for instance, that Hiroshi Yamauchi you know, was the grandson that was abandoned by his dad. That was a fascinating start to a story. And actually, to me, it's really cool that he was 50 plus years Nintendo's president. I I think that's really cool too
1: to realize that that is a freaking crazy thing, man. And that's that's a long time to be president. He took it over
0: in 1949 Mm -hmm. and last until 2002. And I just I think that's great. So this was a fun one. I learned a lot of new stuff about early Nintendo in terms of their distribution and, and the type of cards they made. And I didn't know they struck up a deal with Nintendo or Disney in the 1950s. That was neat to learn.
1: Oh, absolutely. I didn't know that either. And I was kind of curious because you said they had rule books for the cards. So like you would just look at all of them and have to know like, oh, Mickey's a king Date, uh, you know, whoever's the Minnie's the queen and then so on and so I, forth. I don't know. But that's now I never really
0: thought about it until now. So I think that's really cool. But yeah, this was a fun episode. I'd been wanting to talk more about the first generation of consoles for a while. When we did the Odyssey, I, I dabbled in it, but I really held off because I wanted to I really wanted to nail it here when we got to Nintendo's first console. So I could I'd planned on doing Nintendo's history for a while. So I've been looking forward to this one. This one was a lot of fun. So that'll do it. Rob, we did it. That we did, Dave. Yay! Before I take it out of here for next week, is there something that you would like to
1: add? Sure, Dave. As always, I do want to take a quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. We really hope you're enjoying listening. And if you're not enjoying listening, then why are you listening?
0: Why are you listening? I ask that question a lot. Why do people listen to us? It's crazy to think about.
1: Well, because some people are interested in video game history, Dave. Obviously, We, we have a whole podcast about it
0: very 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 true rob next week
1: next week dave
0: we are going to learn about the very first god game ever created um you play a lot of god games
1: like like what like sim city and stuff
0: yeah sim city's not so much it how about like sim earth or um Dungeon Keeper, Black and White, Viva Pinata, Spore. Uh, modern ones would be like Godus or the Universum, I guess, would, would be be them. Can't Close. say I've
1: played any of those.
0: <laughs> so, so God games are a subgenre of artificial life games where you use supernatural powers to like indirectly influence the, your people. So that's what God games are. And we're going back to the beginning next week. We're going to learn all about populace. Uh, we're going to learn about Populous. We'll dabble a little bit in its creator who we've covered before the most uh, braggadocious game creator of all times, Peter Molyneux, who we covered in our, in our fable episode, but I played a lot of Populous. I played a lot of, there was a lot of Populous, So we'll talk about Populous as a series. We'll talk a little bit about the God, you know, about the God genre more in depth. So yeah, So, stick around as we give you a reason to worship us on yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing.
1: Dooba doom, bop, dop, dop, moo doop, moo doo.